Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, welcome along to episode 35 of the Howie Games. Thanks for listening. You guys absolutely rock. Now, this week, the Howie Games explores a victory judged by many to be Australia's greatest sporting moment, and we've had a few of them. Australia 2 winning the America's Cup back in 1983. Wait for this. Breaking a 132-year winning streak by the Americans. 132 years. And that's what she's doing. She's shooting up into the wind. She's going ahead of it. Today's episode tells the story of the skipper of that famous yacht, John Bertrand. And as long-time listeners will know, the Howie Games aims to inspire and motivate the audience, and I reckon this episode meets those aims as well as any that we've released. If you want to learn how to manage people, how to scale near impossible odds, how to persevere, how to develop mental strength, and most of all, if you want to learn how to win, then this is the app for you. They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Now, last week on the Howie Games, we mentioned about a new podcast MJ and I have been working on. It'll be out before Christmas, thanks to our buddies at Podcast One. It's called The Moment, and it takes you behind the scenes on some great moments in Australian sport. Here's a little taste. The seconds are ticking. I'm certainly thinking, along with 80,000, that, yeah, that something's going to happen. Just to get to this point has taken everything you have. The reality is I could die. I could die in three days. I could die in three weeks. I could die in a month. I'll never forget. I looked over my left shoulder and the flames were just roaring up my T-shirt and up my neck. So just panic, panic stations. Will you succeed or will you fail? Yeah, I was probably on the phone to my mum saying that I wanted to come home, like actually crying. It was... Like, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, actually. I, I just sat in my room. Will you be the hero or the villain? And I hit the ball and then I heard a loud bang. But it was the advertising boards of the side of the goal, so I missed the goal completely. Will it be glory? Yeah. It was so wonderful that he actually achieved that through all that struggle. Or will it be regret? Oh, it was... Um, That's probably going to hurt for a very, very long time. It all comes down to one single moment. So I was just like, all right, this is it. Let's, Let's go for it. After everything has happened, can you still do it? Can you still get the footy? Comes over, he shakes my hand and he goes, how are you feeling? I said, mate, I'm nervous as hell. He goes, you're going to win? This walk was, I enjoyed every step of it. It was, you're going to take Australia to the World Cup. The Moment. That's The Moment coming to Podcast One on a date soon to be announced. Now, to sit down and chat for an hour and a half with John Bertrand about one of the most famous moments in Aussie sport, for me, it doesn't get much better. I really, really enjoyed it. I first met John in 2003 when I was shooting a story on him for Channel 7 Sports World. And as part of the yarn, he took myself and the great Channel 7 cameraman, Laz Talecki. G'day to Laz out there. I know he listens. John took us sailing on Corio Bay. Sailing with John Bertrand as the skipper? Yeah, it was a pretty good day. I've had a few more dealings with John when covering various swimming events with Channel 10, John being the president of Swimming Australia. John Bertrand is a great man who in some ways, as you'll hear, is almost in the future before it arrives, if that makes any sense. He's all about innovation, which was at the centrepiece of his greatest sporting moment when John and his crew delivered Australia the America's Cup. Enjoy John Bertrand, AO. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be 
prevail in King Selassie Come on children, try with me We want to reach Mount John Bertrand, welcome to the Howie Games um, It is a treat to have you in here how are you going? You look fit, you look fighting, you look well. <laughs> well, I feel pretty good for an old bloke, absolutely. How old are you? I'm 70 years old. 70 years old. You don't look 70. Oh, well, uh, you know, ages for the dead, forget that. It is, it is. And we're sitting here and we were just, as I was just relating to, I've got in front of you uh, Bertrand Born to Win, which is a book my mum gave my dad in 1985. He was a big sailing fan um, and I read it and I nicked it from him and I read it again over the weekend. Um, <laughs> it's strange to congratulate someone on a book that was written over 30 years ago but geez it's a good sport book yeah well it's been uh, printed printed into a lot of different languages Has i it? think yeah and it's used still in some mba courses in the u.s at university level so uh, yeah we're you know pretty proud of that Does it sell well Does it make you some shekels well it's it's uh, i believe it's the biggest uh selling uh, autobiography ever in Australia. Really? Yeah. Was it fun to write? Because as again, uh, congr- it is. It seems strange because it's so long ago to congratulate you on it. But again, I read it over the weekend, and it, it's a fascinating read. It's sport and psychology and all sorts of things rolled into one. Was it fun to write? Yeah. Well, it was. It was a purge, actually. Was it? Yeah. And uh, in hindsight, it was. I'm really happy that uh, you know. The, that uh, I put that together because then I could get on with the rest of my life. It's kind of interesting because, you know, it's a story within a story. It's my overview of of what happened, but it's not that. It's just a life journey. And um, we reprinted it, I guess, about three or four years ago and updated it with some, you know, extra couple of chapters, what I've done since. But putting all that aside, it was a great relief to uh, get it in, get it down. Uh, Pretty emotional, some of it, Mm. as you can imagine. It's raw. And get on with it. Yeah. It's, it's a really raw book. Absolutely. Do, do you still have, you must still have people come up to you on the street now and say, when you crossed the line in 1983, I was doing this or I was doing that. Is that, is that, um, is that a wonderful thing? Oh, it's fantastic. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. People actually say what, they want to tell me what they were doing, <laughs> yep. not what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? That's oh, great. Yeah, and of course, us Australians, we're kind of, you know, we're pretty laid back and uh, we're not like the Americans, more high five. So it's a. I respect people when they do come up and want to talk about it because it's generally a you know it's a big deal for them. Uh, if if I lived in the US, it'd be different. But uh, in Australia, yeah, you you respect that. It's just great. Well, I'm going to have to do it to you now because I was with <laughs> my dad, who was a big sailor, and he still loves sailing, and he would drag me out of bed. Um, I would have been probably six or seven, um, and I still remember being on the floor in Sydney and we'd got over whatever time in the morning and the smoke goes. And um, it's such a defining moment in Australian sport. It, what a treat to be involved with something like that. It is yeah. so well known still. Yeah, that's right. It, it was um, the Confederation of Australian Sport have voted the Australia 2 win as the greatest team performance in the last 200 years. Wow. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Well, you know, again, it's the pride of what we achieved. And I was actually told quite a few years ago that uh, there were more people uh, naturalised as a result of that day than ever before or since in Australian history on the basis that they, a lot of people felt part of this country for the first time. So, you know, clearly it was a bigger than a sporting event. It was certainly much, much bigger than a sailboat race. It was Australia taking on the world in a recession, mm. you know, way back in 83. Uh, we're doing it tough, as was the world. It was a global type of recession. But um, 
I guess we needed heroes, and that was all part and parcel of... And, of course, the comeback from 3-1 down. It was a biggie. Which we'll get into in detail, but just a story that really caught my eye in your book when we were talking about people coming up to you and saying where they were. You related a story out of a fellow out of Papua New Guinea, yeah. a, a tribe member that that came down from nowhere and started asking people what had happened to a big white boat from Australia. It had an enormous reach. Yeah, that's right. Um all around the world, actually, not just Australia. Um, yeah, you know, what do you say about that? It's just an amazing situation. So we go right back. Uh, we're in Melbourne today in South Melbourne. You don't live too far from here. What are your first memories of sailing? Obviously, it was a big part of your family and, and your ancestry, I guess, John. Yes. Um, you know, basically, we grew up on the beach, my brother and I. We're, you climb over the back fence of our house in Chelsea and we're on, onto the beach at Port Phillip Bay. And about uh, 400 metres down the track was the Chelsea Yacht Club. So the Chelsea Yacht Club was our kindergarten. We used to, <laughs> you know, five and six and seven years old, whip off down there and hide up in the rafters and hide and seek and the whole thing. So that was our world. It was, And we'd muck around with boats in the summertime and play footy in winter. Uh, I played for the Chelsea uh, Footy Club, under-15s, under-17s and so on. What position? Uh, I generally uh, ruck and centre-half forward. Ruck? Yeah. The modern football is a bit taller these days, aren't yeah, they? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Were you a good footy player? Uh, I eventually played for South Melbourne under 19s, right, and okay. then I had to make a decision whether get involved with that more or uh, or the sailing. And I was start, starting to become pretty good in the sailing world at that point. Sounds like life was so much freer then. I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old now, and and if they were out of my sight, running around in a building I didn't know over the back fence or two blocks away or four blocks away, I'd probably be naturally concerned, but a different mm. time. We just took off, you know, took off in the morning and came back at night. God only knows how we survived. Yeah. <laughs> uh, food and water. <laughs> Who cared? And um, we'd come home for dinner, you know, so there was just no no rules, no nothing. We just looked after ourselves. And uh, it's the way it was. No sun, no sun uh, screen, no sunglasses. Mm. Big blisters, what the hell, you know, it's just the way uh, life was. So when do you get on a, a boat, a, a vessel for the first time? You're probably that young, you can't remember. Uh, no, I do. Do you? Yeah, the dream time. Really? You know? Oh, yeah. It's the first time we ever got on a sailboat uh, was really my father had a uh, an old powerboat with no engine, mm-hmm. couldn't afford an engine. We used to paddle this thing out and then uh, put a mast up and a, my mum made a... Uh, from a parachute, a square rig sail, and uh, we turn the uh, old speedboat around and <laughs> blow back to blow back to uh, the shore. At what age? I'd say about six. And what captured you about it at, at that stage? It was really the uh, the purity of of uh, no sound going through the water with wind power, and the uh, uh, watching the bubbles go past. Huh. You know, it's a beautiful thing. So connection with mother nature in many ways and then i started to get more interested in racing you know the competitive side but it was i was pretty competitive looking back on it so it was really only when i was 12 or 13 that i started to enjoy the racing up until then it was uh, all a bit much for me and when it was you and your brother were you a united crew with the bertrands a united crew out there on the water well we used to fight pretty hard like any brother <laughs> combination so uh, <laughs> it was only actually when i'm the younger two years and nine months younger than uh, my brother lex and uh it was only really uh, when I he started sailing with me in terms of me skippering and he crewing that he we had the maturity. In other words, he was mature enough to, uh, you might say, uh, work in combination with myself. Whereas when I was crewing with him, I was getting frustrated. Right. And uh, you know, we used to 
belt each other up a bit, you know, just normal stuff. So at what stage does it become a, a much more important part of your life than just having fun and looking at the world drift by? Well, it's always been fun, you know, and without it you can't progress at a high level. But uh, it's when we started, when I started winning national championships and then off to the uh, my first America's Cup, I was probably the youngest guy to ever sail an America's Cup boat and that was way back in 1970 for uh, a man called Sir Frank Packer. He was the chairman and a boat called Gretel too, and we're off to the US and wide-eyed, bushy-tailed and uh, married my bride, Raza. Where'd you mean? I love a love story. Yeah. I love a good love story. <laughs> 431 Jazz Dance in St Kilda Road, would you believe? There were four. I'd, I was 18 years and one day. Right. I had a licence, uh, driving my uncle's uh, um, Holden. Right. And uh, three mates from the Chelsea Yacht Club and myself, we, we, went, <laughs> we went hunting. <laughs> For ladies. Yeah. <laughs> And we came across uh, at this jazz dance four nurses. We couldn't believe it. We just thought, you know, struck out. Perfect. Oh, God. You know, had no idea what in the hell we're getting involved with. <laughs> one of them was Raza Padgerskis. Right. And uh, eventually married the young lady. What was it about Raza that caught your eye? Uh, feisty. And um, as clearly something about her. We, we had a up and down, you know, we, we met way too young, mm. so it was on and off, on and off for many, for quite a few years. So when we got married, she was 22 and I was 23. Yeah, but uh, so we've now been married 47 years, which I can tell you is a world record. No one will ever achieve that. <laughs> <laughs> and at what age were you sporting? Because when I think of you, very similar when I think of um, some of the cricketers, when I think of Dennis Lilly or I think of Rod Marsh or, or even Merv Hughes or Booney, I, I associate a moustache with you and you've still yeah. got a moustache today. <laughs> um, when, when did you first sport the Aussie Mo? Um, well, then after the uh, 1970 America's Cup with Gretel Two. Uh, I stayed on and then did a Master of Science at MIT in Boston. I got a scholarship because I graduated from Monash University with a mechanical engineering degree. In. Right. And I grew a full beard, bought a motorcycle, a 650 BMW, had no idea what I and we were doing, <laughs> rather on the back, and we took off for summer uh, with a full beard. This is the Easy Rider era. Right, when around we, America. Yep. We went down south to Georgia and Alabama and crossed the New Mexico desert to LA and up to San Francisco. It was... Uh, it was effectively three months. We spent $70 in three months because wow. we, we we camped and lived in national parks or stayed with people on the basis of our accents and World War II, vet, you know, people yep. just wanting to pay back the Aussies. It was unbelievable hospitality and still is when you're in the US. But uh, anyway, so I shaved everything off except uh, a moustache. And had it ever since? Yeah. <laughs> you talk about travelling and I... And you talked about university, and it's, I've always enjoyed travelling. It's always a big, big part of my life. And if, if my son and my daughter came to me in 15 years and said, right, I'm going to go to uni, I'm going to travel, I'm only going to do one, I think I would tell them travel. Mm. Don't worry about university, go and travel. What did you learn about yourself and, and, your, and your wife at that stage? With no, it's, it's bizarre when you have no commitments in life, which I'm sure at that point you didn't. And no fear. Yeah. You know, and that's a beautiful thing. So the things and no you money. discover. No, not a Zach. Um. You know, we were pretty cold in, in uh, Boston. We couldn't pay for the heating sometimes, you know. Right. Raza, the only form of income was Raza's meagre wage at Boston City Hospital where she was delivering drug-addicted babies. Right. You know, pretty tough environment. My word. And I was, <clears throat> you know, a um, naive university student at MIT with a, a scholarship that paid for the fees, but that was about all. Um, 
you know, it's just a sense of survival. But it's this no fear, which is extremely powerful. So we've got three kids now, and uh, effectively we gave them a uh, around-the-world ticket and kicked them out of the nest, and it's, it's been great for them. When they, you know, they actually all went to university, but uh, at different stages of uni they took off for one or two, in some cases three years. And it's just the making of these young people. It's It's about resilience in many ways. And I think one of the biggest issues, biggest challenges we have, you know, is the is the helicopter type parent world. Mm. People are concerned about safety and all that sort of thing, and we want the kids to be this thing called happy, whatever that means. And uh, I think there's a lot more, too much over parenting of kids, and um, it's a matter of resilience for these young people. So how do you do it? Well, get out of the place and uh, see the big world, and and learn to walk and talk, and also understand just how wonderful this country is and can be oh, that's the best thing about going away you know all of a sudden what you've got at home and I, my parents did exactly the same thing they told me if i finish uni they'd buy me around the world ticket and it completely changed my life there completely opened my eyes and yeah. gave me a greater understanding of how lucky we are here if, if nothing else i think is quite wonderful it's obviously you're pretty good at school when you're starting to get scholarships to mit obviously it was it uh, academia or being intellectual did it come easily to you did it something you had to work at I was an average student all the way through, but then I started to get really interested in the subject matter. And uh, my my uh, undergraduate uh, thesis uh, was, would you believe, the optimum angle of attack of America's Cup sales. <laughs> <laughs> this, you were born to do this. Yeah. How many pages was that sucker? Well, it, it actually topped the university. Did it? Yeah. Because and you were passionate about it. I was 7 by 24. Right. You know. And uh, so I was so involved, we created some new, what we call lifting line theory, aerodynamic theories and so on, with a guy called Professor Bill Melbourne, who was my um, professor and mentor, and he's just sensational. And when I started to really get into this, then I started to become pretty good at what I was doing, up until then, very average student. And that was really key for being able to get a scholarship to MIT, which is considered one of the best engineering schools in the world. So it was a... Um, it's, you know, again, when I when people ask me about uh, what they should be doing, I, I just, I'm adamant to just find your passion, whatever that is, and then you can become good at it. But I've never met anyone that's that's been so-called successful that's not pa- pa- passionate in terms of what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good point. Your you, you sailing side of things, um, a lot of people wouldn't know, they, they know you as the... 983 in the America's Cup skip, they wouldn't have known about your Olympic experiences. What does it mean to you to be an Olympian? Oh, it's something, again, I'm very proud of. We, I won, I, well, first of all, won the leather medal in 1972 the, at the German Olympic Games. Right. Leather meaning the fourth Munich? place. Munich, yeah. We so, were actually up north called Kiel. So you weren't involved at the time when everything was happening? Yes, yeah, certainly was. Well, we were up north and... Um, you know, basically the whole Olympics was going to be closed down. That's when the Israelis were massacred. Yeah. The game suspended, at least for the time being. Arab guerrillas had invaded the male athletes' housing area, killed two Israelis in the pre-dawn raid, claimed eight hostages, and later, at a military airport, as the scene shifted, the other eight hostages died. And uh, there were concerns about security at the sailing village in Kiel, which is 500 miles north of um, of Munich. Were you worried? Do you remember being worried about the uh, situation? We were just shocked. Shocked in terms, again, the purity of the Olympic movement. Yeah. Olympic Games have been... I'd been striving, you know, living on the smell of an oil rag with Raza in the back of a 
you know, li- living in a car, $12 a day, you know, it's basically no coach, no nothing. And, uh, but anyway, the Olympics went on, which was the right decision. And uh, I finished fourth, which is, they call it the leather medal. Mm. Nobody cares except mum and dad and the kids, you know, <laughs> absolutely nobody. And with all the work that goes into it. So then I decided, uh, well, then I was involved with the Next America's Cup with a man called Alan Bond, 1974, Southern Cross, and then I was an assistant designer to Ben Lexon for that project. And that's a, you know, that's a story in itself. But basically, 76 uh, did the Canadian Olympics and won the bronze. And that's when Australia was seen to be a total failure in terms of medal count. We won, I think, three bronze medal and a silver and one of those bronze was myself and the end result being the australian institute of sport correct that's right and that's a, you know that was a turning point uh for sp- uh, australia on the international scene and it had to be you know again there was no coach no nothing uh Ru- east germany was first russia was second and uh, australia myself was third and we looked at the professionalism of the eastern bloc countries then relative to what we were doing in australia there was just no comparison you relate, and, and I would only ask you this in respect because you write about it when you say you won the bronze medal. Would it be fair to say you lost the silver or the gold? Well, in reality, I look back on the, that Olympic Games, maybe three or four months after the Olympics, after coming back to Australia, and uh, it became clear to me that I could have won the Olympic gold just as easily as the bronze if I had been mentally tougher. And that life lesson uh, was in hindsight fundamental for looking back at it even you know later on in terms of our ability to win the america's cup because what? it's a, then it's a pressure game it's a mental game at that level what happened in montreal uh was winning the regatta a uh, very close race with east german and quite a lot of wind look behind he was only maybe half a meter behind we're both surfing uh you know boats going pretty fast the finna class single-handed class uh, and uh, then I was pressed, be, pressed beyond what I'd been uh, um, training for, mm-hmm. took a, a risk, which in hindsight should never have done, and uh, missed one of the falls of the so-called main sheet, one of the control lines. The boat flipped upside down, boom, all over. So it was this whole issue of, okay, uh, just going beyond what you'd trained for and uh, taking a risk, which in hindsight was never required. And... Uh, that type of lesson, you, I can still see it, you know, still <laughs> unfolding and the boat capsizing. We're talking about a long time ago. Yeah. But those lessons run deep, you know. And my experience is, is that you really learn from the so-called mistakes, not so much the wins, but the mistakes. So I felt that if I was ever put in that position of extreme pressure, self-induced pressure, then uh, I would be able to make different decisions to that particular day, that afternoon of racing uh, in, uh, in Canada. You mentioned that you were living on 12 bucks a day, living in a car in the lead up to that. Tell me about that. That's a that's Well, a that's story. the reality. It's just no money. So 12 bucks a day was the uh, remuneration from, I guess, the AOC then, because right. Australian Sailing probably would have had no money. Huh. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a joke. Where were you? In here in Australia? Or? No, in Europe. In Europe? Yeah, yeah. What yeah. type of car were you sleeping in the back of? Uh, I can't remember. I think it was probably a Puget. Right. We, yeah, but... Uh, the uh, the car was hired, uh, that was okay, but then beyond that, you had nothing, and we had no, you know, Rousel had no money. So it just the way it was, and no coach, no nothing. So in that era, <laughs> it was a, um, in the, you know, amateur hour, in other words, relative to the, you know, competing against the Brits and the Eastern Bloc countries and so on. And, um, you know, that was <clears throat> that was sport in this country. 
you know, so we're lambs to the slaughter in that regard. Gee, your wife must have had some faith in you to be trekking around with a bloke that was living in a car. That's a pretty strong woman, I would have she thought. She reckons she cried for the first year of our marriage, realising that she'd, sa- she'd married a sailing bum. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she probably had, uh, you know, good reason. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. You mentioned the America's Cup, and obviously we naturally get to that, and reading about it over the weekend. Before we get to that, though, what's your first... Did you read about it? I presume the America's Cups before you got to... Were they on Newsreel? Did you see America's Cups? On the Cup? wireless. On the radio? On the wireless, it was called at right, those days. Right, the wireless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> listening. I remember listening to uh, Gretel 1. Uh, God, I don't know what time it was. Probably about 2 in the morning. Captivated? Oh, yeah. And surfing past a boat called Weatherly to win one of the races, the America's Cup, and a man called Jock Sturrock who then became Australian of the Year in winning one race of the oh. America's Cup, would you believe? <laughs> Amazing. And um, so that was, you know, dream time, America's Cup. You know, you just couldn't think of anything higher. That truly, you know, in that world was the Everest of sport. Was it achievable for you as a young man thinking, yep, that's, that's where I'm going, that's where I'm going to get to? Uh, it was a dream, whether it was achievable. It's hard to be able to, you know, say that. But uh, a dream of being involved one day, um, you know, you you couldn't go any higher in terms of dream time. Better you than me explain the dominance of the Americans. I think it was a 132-year streak that you eventually broke. It was called the longest um, streak in the history of professional sport. Why were the Americans able to win so often and so well. Yeah, they're very, very well organised and financially very strong. You know, the most powerful nation on earth, technically and uh, and and uh, wealth-wise, and, you know, 300 million people now. So they had, you know, they could draw on the resources of NASA and Boeing Aircraft and McDonnell Douglas and so on. Which, you know, it's a technology race as well as a, mm. a uh, athletic endeavour in many ways and extremely well organised over a long period of time. But it goes back, you know, the America's Cup, to put it in, in context, went back before the US Civil War when the first racing continued, it started. And uh, they, that's right, they successfully defended for 132 years before... You know, this little nation called Australia came along, and lots of different nations had tried and failed. The defending ship, the Ranger, ready to uphold America's long string of victories, unbroken since 1851. So it was a huge, it was a technical challenge and a psychological challenge. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, the, uh, you know, my experience with, you know, I'd already done three America's Cups, yep. all failures in their own right. Uh, and also the Olympic Games, where, as I said before, could have won the gold perhaps just as easily as the bronze if I had been mentally tougher. Mm. All of those elements were fundamentally important for the whole psychological battle that we had in front of us with the America's Cup because, again, it had never been done. It was like the four-minute mile, perhaps, looking back with Bannister. When he broke through that magic number, then, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 Milers within the next three months broke yep. through that invisible barrier. Before that, the medico suggested it couldn't be done. The human heart wasn't strong enough to propel a man around the track under four minutes. Um, so, you know, a lot of it was between the ears as well as the the, uh, the various other elements. So, and of course, when we won, that's the whole thing opened up, and it went from amateur to professional professionalism because it was clear to a lot of people, including a guy called Michael Fay. A merchant bank called Fay Richwhite in New Zealand, 
uh, to think if those bastards can do it, maybe we can do it. <laughs> and that was the start of the New Zealand onslaught, as well as many other countries. You mentioned a few names in there, so Frank Packer and the names of his yacht, Gretel, which was well known, and then, and then Bondi came along. Again, looking at it over the weekend, um, I think it was seven straight times that the Americans were the defender, the Australians were the challenger. Um, they won 28 races. You need to win four to win. Mm. And the Australians had won two. So it wasn't just that they were winning the America's Cup and you were involved in some of those campaigns. They were smashing us, destroying us. 28 races to two. Mm. Yeah, well, they were well organised. You know, the technology was very good. Uh, A big uh, group of people to call from. In other words, a big population, highly competitive nation. And the Americans were not in the business of losing (laughs) the America's Cup. So it was it was full on. Yes, that was that was very clear. So when did you first meet Alan Bond? One of the more and the great thing about the story and uh, the America's Cup and Australia too is there's so many larger than life characters. We we'll get yeah. to the Prime Minister and Ben Lexon and y- and yourself and and Dennis Connor. You know, it's it's scripted like a movie. But Alan Bond, when did you first meet Bondy and what what was his interest in sailing? Well, Bondy was the, again put it in context. He was thirty four years old when he first challenged for the America's Cup. You talk about chutzpah, mm. and he was technically broke at the time. He was a property developer in Perth. And as they say, if, if you're in property and you're not technically broke, you're not trying enough, you know, <laughs> <laughs> using the bank's money and whatever. And, you know, but at any rate, he was it. And uh, so how did he get involved with the America's Cup? Uh, he got involved in sailing. It was a payoff of a boat. Uh, it was given uh, a debt was paid by using a, uh, a sailboat instead of in lieu of cash. Well, someone gave him a boat. Well, it's part of paying off a debt. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. That you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, just the way it is, you know. Yeah. And um, so Alan got involved in the Sydney Hobart and, and met this guy called uh, Ben Lexon. His original name was Bob Miller, actually, and he changed his name by deed pole. And uh, the, that little story is he had a... Uh, ben, this is Alan. You no, know, Ben Lexon had a falling out with his business partner, Many years before, and uh, he changed his name to Ben Lexon. Ben was huh. Ben was a, a zany guy. He was a, 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 the Leonardo da Vinci of this country in many ways. No education. He went to school at nine, left at twelve. Put it in context. Did he really? Yeah. And uh, so, where did Ben Lexon come from? Well, Ben was the name of his dog, and Lexon was the name of his de facto wife at the time. No. <laughs> and he just formulated his own name. That's it. Brilliant. Benny. And Benny went on to be the godfather of our eldest son, Lucas. Benny died in 1992, a heart attack. But uh, remarkable, interesting characters. And so this guy, Alan Bond, 34 years old, I met him uh, probably 1973 uh, uh, after, uh, yeah, after, uh, after I'd graduated from MIT. And uh, larger than life, maximum horsepower. <laughs> um, the objective was to uh, well he bought 15 kilometres of beach called Yanship Sun City and his tagline was Yanship Sun City home of the America's Cup and uh, it's a bold move <laughs> oh it's great so the, the vision was very clear very simple we were going to win the America's Cup in 1974 with a boat called Southern Cross and of course uh, defended but the bigger picture was then Bondi was going to host the Olympic Games at Yanship Sun City, home of the America's Cup. He'd build a, build a monorail link between Yanship and Perth. And as you do. 
So he wasn't a man that lacked vision. No way. <laughs> he wasn't a man that lacked vision. But the interesting thing is that we got hammered in 74. He went back in 77. I said, no, I, never again. It was amateur hour. But I did the 76 Olympics instead. He came back in 80, got hammered again. I was part of that project. And then 83. So you talk about resilience. The mm. guy just kept going. And he was... He, he didn't know much about sailing, but he knew, uh, you know, great vision, and that was that's driven the development of Western Australia in many ways. That type of person, and uh, you know, that was Alan uh, totally. More of John in a moment. Now, it must be said, a lot of feedback has been received this week about our producer MJ, who was detailed in last week's episode as going to the Singapore Grand Prix with the express aim of securing a Howie Games episode with Lewis Hamilton. The closest he got was trying to accost Lewis as the hammer arrived at the track. For those that missed it, yeah, this is how it went down. Lewis! Lewis! MJ here from Australia. Good luck on the weekend. Yeah, be fair to say the big penguin wasn't overly impressed by our man's efforts to secure the hammer and he sort of strafed our wonderful producer, did the penguin. Lewis, Lewis, MJ from Australia. What a bloody turkey pickle. Yeah, a turkey indeed. So a bit of an update for you. MJ, who is now quite rightly driven by shame, and fair enough too, is now starting the long process of going through the official channels to request a Howie Games episode with Lewis Hamilton. So who'd you email, mate? So I met this bloke after the GP finished on the Sunday. He's at a bar near the track and he um, he's interviewed Lewis a couple of times and was going to give me the management's details. So he, that hasn't come through yet, but um, he, he said he was pretty tight with the management. So, I was so a journo? Yeah, yeah he's, um, he was a journo who sort of had contacts with Lewis's management, so he said he's happy to pass those details on. So. A, bloke you, a, a bloke you met in a pub, is he tight with Lewis? Well, he, he said he's interviewed him a couple of times, I don't know. He said he was tight with the management more than Lewis, I think, so... Interviewed him. Start. F- me, mate. It sounds like a fair old f- long shot, to be honest. Yeah, I think it'd be fair to say the Howie Games team is a little fractured over this particular situation. So let's be honest, it could be a while before we get Lewis on, but don't give up, hope. But anyway, don't worry. We have another tasty episode for you next week. It features one of the great storytellers, and he's got a few stories to tell this bloke. He won a Cricket World Cup. He's played VFL football. He missed being a Melbourne Cup winning owner by a lip. I mean a lip. And he's overcome cancer. His name is Simon O'Donnell. So I... Knocked on Bob Simpson, the coach, and I didn't tell... Well, I said, look, Bob, I don't think I'm well, but I said, I just want you to know that. That's why I haven't probably been myself for the last couple of days. Yeah. But I'm fine for tomorrow. Right. Nothing will stop what I need to do tomorrow. There is... It is of no effect. But I think I've got a health issue. We'll deal with that when I get home. Tomorrow, it, it, it won't even enter my mind. At times, a serious episode, that one, but at other times, one of the funniest episodes of the Howie Games we've recorded. That's Simon O'Donnell next week on the show. Now, that was good acting, I thought, mate. <laughs> People won't think that's serious, will they? No, I don't know. I don't know. No, they won't think it. They'll, they'll think I'm a bit of a prick if they do. I think you got the real. I think you got the real Robert De Niro stuff down. Make sure you put the beeps in, whatever you do. Yeah, the beeps will be in, the beeps will be in. Can you apologise to the big penguin for me? <laughs> He'll be flat when he hears that. All right, mate, I'll speak to you soon. Good job, buddy. Uh, mate. All righty, back to John. 
the thing that fascinates me again rereading Born to Win is it's nowadays in modern sport and you've been involved with the swimmers in recent times and the president of Swimming Australia there's a real aspect of the mental aspect of sport and mm. psychological warfare and the terms that we hear typically around sport all the time now Steve War used to talk about mental disintegration it seemed to me you guys were the first to really bring that into a sporting arena to pump yourselves up and to cause concerns for the opposition. Was that something that naturally happened? And Who led that? How did that come to pass? Because it's a, it's a massive part of the story, I guess. Mm, that's right. Uh, not so much pump yourself up, it's really to be able to work in the environment of super high pressure and to be able to make the right decisions at the right time. That's really the silver bullet with all of this stuff. It's the same with the, uh, you know, the Swimming Olympic program. Mm. Um, it was really, from my perspective, uh, I'd been involved with three losing America's Cup efforts. And the Americans say, they all t always talk about fail fast. We've just come back from a tour of Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach in, in, the, in the US with the swimming program, looking at new technologies and also development work about the, uh, again, making decisions under extreme pressure, fascinating tour. But uh, hmm. it's really this whole issue of, uh, of nailing it. And when the development, when, uh, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of hours of preparation and practice, when the so-called development curves start to flatten out, people come together at a pretty equal level of uh, expertise, as it turns out. The Olympic Games, America's Cup, a lot of this stuff anyone can win with the right mental approach. Uh, well, the difference between winning and losing is really the, how cool you are, you know, how are you working in a slow motion world where the decisions come at you slowly and as a result, and we're still talking about microseconds, a little bit like, a you know, the great footballers, how they can carve time and space out of nothing. Mm. And us mortals look and think, what happened? <laughs> uh, Pendlebury, how he just seems to be able to carve time and space, even though we're, we're talking about literally millimetres between being nailed or not, you know, to get the hand pass away or to make the right decision. That's really the key with a lot of this stuff. So at this highest level, this is a major area of, of, of learning. And certainly with the America's Cup, it became clear to me after losing and also losing, you might say, or not losing, but winning the bronze, but uh, not winning the gold, that that's, that's where the action was. So I, I was keen and I brought in a sports psychologist, which was early days, a guy called Laurie Hayden. This is the Australia Tour effort. But first of all, I went to a, a, the captain of the Carlton Football Club, who was Mike Fitz, Fitzpatrick. And they'd actually used a sports psychologist as part of their winning of the VFL Grand Final way back in 1982, I guess it was, mm -hmm. or maybe 81, maybe 81. And um, so that's where, you know, that's where we came across Laurie. But now that whole world has moved on much, much further developed. And that's a big, big part of um, when we look back at the Rio Olympic Games with the swimming program and also Tokyo, and also America's Cup coming up in a few weeks' time over in Bermuda. Yep. A lot of this stuff is then between the years. We're working closely, we meaning Swimming Australia, working closely with SAS, Special Forces, again, and uh, also the Red Bull Formula and Motor Racing Team. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot going on in this space, but generally a lot of technology, yes, absolutely, but uh, again, it's how do you become race-hardened competition to harden so you actually nail it when it really counts you had whenever again as i said there's so many great storylines and one of them was the mystery boat and the mystery keel and the wing keel and i think i don't know i think 
I don't know if you find it bizarre or strange or downright wrong that people say, oh, yeah, that's the America's Cup boat that won because they had that amazing boat and that amazing keel. Uh, to me, again, reading about what's going on, it seemed, sure, that had a physical impact, but you used that as much as a psychological impact, never showing it whenever you went to press conferences. If the boat hadn't performed in conditions that well that day, you never mentioned the boat. You're always, oh, I didn't do well or the crew didn't well do well. So you built up this concept that mm. you were in a boat that was unbeatable in a way. Yes, yeah. The my clever, uh, very clever. Yeah, my um, you know competitor at arms, uh, Dennis Connor, the skipper of the US program, and we never called. We never. I never referred to Dennis as Dennis. It was. We just basically tried to uh, make the whole thing innate in many ways. So Liberty was just the red boat. Right, that's your opposition. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I knew Dennis for many years. You know, we'd actually sailed together on some big boat racing in, in the US and so on. But um, it was really to, to dehumanise the whole area. Uh, yeah, the, he wrote a book called No Excuses to Lose, which was very insightful and, and you know, very interesting book. And primarily, you could summarise it by if you outspend, outdevelop and outtrain your opposition, then there's no excuse to lose, which is very logical. Mm. And here the Australian effort came along uh, and uh, we started to build up a very, very formidable win-loss ratio against the other foreign nations that we had to beat over a five-month period of racing. And that were the French and the Italians and the Brits and so on. Uh, and um, we covered the, the keel. It was always secret. And that started to get become a major issue for the Americans uh, because uh, they basically had everything figured out except this, the Australian boat where we refused to show what we had underneath. And the ob obvious thing is that it was something that was very, very important. And that became imp very, very uh, much part of their, perhaps, the pressure that was evolved. So the last race, for example, of the America's Cup, in hindsight, um, their decision-making broke down uh, halfway through the race. And they um, was there panic? I'm not sure panic is the right word, but regardless of that, part of it is, is that they thought that we had a super boat and the Did only, you? No, we didn't. The boat was very good, but uh, we'd raced against a con our conventional sister ship, a boat called Challenge 12, for four months, and the difference between the boats were very, very slim. In some cases, this conventional boat was a little faster, we were a little faster in other conditions. The boat was very good, but we also had fantastic sails. The whole technology package that we'd worked up was extremely good. And uh, But... That final race, they call they, you know they called it the race of the century. The fact is, is that we actually made less mistakes than the opposition, and we went on to win the win the event. And that was, you know, the enormity of the uh, decisions were were there t for everyone to see. I guess, from my perspective, I may have I don't know, but I may have had a thousand decisions to make as a skipper of the boat over a two and a half hour race. And uh, for me, those decisions were coming at me in slow motion. So it was easy for me to endeavour to make the right decisions. And these we're talking about microsecond decisions anyway. And uh, so I was in a, you know, what they call the zone in many ways. And, uh, and looking back on it, the US program made more mistakes than we did and were able to you know, win the race. So you know, it was a pretty interesting case study in terms of pressurised. And having been there and done it, I can f not only have empathy, but this is a big push in terms of this, uh, you know, where we're going as a, as a nation at, at the highest level at the Olympic Games or indeed the America's Cup. You've been quite um, clinical in describing 
what happened. I want you to try and, which might not be easy now because a few years ago, I want you to try and cast your mind back to certain moments and the emotion of it. The first time you set sail, as you said, the, the Challenger Series, I think you might have had 50-odd races. You've won 49 or 48. You only dropped five. So you, you go in as confident as you can be, I guess. You're, you're up against the Americans. The first time you, you're heading out to the course as the skipper, you've been there a lot of years before, but now you're the skipper. What, what type of emotions are going on at that stage when you're taking on the unbeatable? Yes, well, the best way, again, to p- endeavour to paint the environment is, is yep. that... Uh, we, before we left the dock, there would have been maybe 30 or 40 helicopters above, you know, 1,000 feet and 1,500 feet, and then fixed-wing aircraft above that That's wow. before we even left the dock. U.S. Coast Guard uh, in the harbour and outside, and, um, you know, a 1,000 spectator boats, but massive, nothing less than 100 feet long, you know. Um, so unlike a normal environment, you just couldn't communicate even further forward than maybe one metre, which is... Grant Simmer or, you know, a tactical navigator or Huey Trahan, my tactician. So the total game changer. And the water was totally rough with all the uh, all the spectator boats. Not, actually, more than a 1,000 boats, just a, the horizon covered with spectator boats. Wow. So emotion and tension, enormous. And then that you're basically in, into your own bubble at that point. Uh, we didn't want to know anything that was happening back home, Uh we got rid of all television sets out of the compound that we're at and we got rid of all newspapers and we basically just went into our own zone. But, of course, then we lost a whole bunch of races. There were 3-1 down and then it was a, a situation of endeavouring to climb out of the abyss. But before you, before you get to the abyss, there's a few things that happened before that. Um, and I talked about the great parts of the story. You, you also made for the movie, you had the great soundtrack to the story, which, you know, that uh, Men at Work song... Um, you had the boxing kangaroo up there. How, how did the Men at Work song become such a... Well, when we studied armies over the last thousand years, yep. typically armies, it's just part of the human race, it would appear. We go to war, and we were at war with the America's Cup. That's the way you looked at it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we are going to foreign territory, and uh, we weren't going to come out until we gave it a good crack. Uh, but they go to war with music, with sound, and with symbols. So we chose a uh, battle hymn called Men at Work Down Under, which is just perfect in hindsight. Perfect. And we created the boxing kangaroo flag, which was our battle flag. Red gloves for aggression, pumped up chest for the pride of a nation, taking on the world. And uh, that's kind of how we went to war. The first race, I think you had a gear failure, all of a sudden you're down 2 nil. You're getting edgy at this stage. You, you, you're down two nil. As I said, that they'd won twenty eight to two over the last seven campaigns. Does any doubt at any stage creep in? Have you had doubts? Have you not had doubts? Well, you never. Not as if you ever go into any of these environments thinking that you're going to, you know, that you're going to nail this thing because there's so many variables. But the question is, can you give it your best? Mm. And uh, I think maybe the best way to summarise it: when we're three one down, the question in the international press that was asked of me and I was only reminded about this a little while back they said what do you you know how do you feel and I said apparently I said nothing's changed we still got to win tomorrow's race and that was the whole you know whole positioning it's the only position you could do the despondent Australians return to their dock knowing that down 3-1 in the cup series they cannot afford to make any more errors Liberty needs only one more win to retain the cup in other words 
the consequences of winning or losing at that stage of the game were enormous and the probability of winning was probably a thousand to one against so the question is getting rid of the consequences of winning or losing out of your mind which is just like cancer that in to to win to become a national hero forget it at the 3-1 down to lose and not endeavor to live with that for the rest of your life was equally of, of enormity and I said I remember saying to the crew you know it's like let's say we're on the back of an eagle a thousand feet in the air and you see a sailboat going along a yacht a boat has a bow wave and a stern wave and this it's all drag and so I, I said with big pair of scissors you actually cut off the bow waves and the stern waves and let that boat go free and uh, that's really getting the uh, getting the rid of the consequences of winning or losing out of your mind and just going into tomorrow's race and giving it our best shot and we figured we had a 50 50 shot and if we got the job done we'd be invited to get back to sail another day and if we did that of course you know we we know the logic says you'd be invited back yet another day and uh, that's the only way that we could uh, we could take it. So the of course the pressure was enormous, and the uh, emotion was in check. But it's this whole issue of um, just forgetting, getting rid of the all the weight off your shoulders, and that was a big big thing. Your wife at this stage no doubt played a very important role. She might have delivered a few home truths to you at at various stages during the campaign. I think again you relate to. I keep coming <laughs> back to your book, but she. Well, you can relate the story. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about when you were heading out and she started to compare to others that had gone before you. Yeah, she's straight to the point, Raza. <laughs> so um, that's right. So, uh, you know, she's words to effect. I think we're 3-1 down and she may have said something along the lines of, uh, you know, if you, do you want to be remembered for the uh, just another Australian skipper who's won one race? You might say to the point. <laughs> and how does that make you feel at that point? Well, again, yeah, it's the focus, and of course, the total trusted loved one. Um, and it's sort of, you know you're, you're endeavouring to pull together all the strength you can in that situation because you, again, you know, you talk about backs to the wall, um, and that is, you know, it's a life of uh, life journey. I'd been at it for twelve years trying to win this thing, mm. and the reality is, if we had a loss, I would have kept going until we'd won. But putting that aside, the uh, uh, people who you totally trust have, have a huge can have a huge impact in the way you think. So those types of uh, that input was was uh, in hindsight terrific. How's Bondi going at one three down? Ellen had actually come of age at that point. Interesting enough, in his first America's Cup, when he got frustrated because we we're being hammered, he he decided he'd get on the boat and sail as a grinder. He was on the boat. Yeah, uh, in, uh, in the last race. That's right. right. In 1974. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, whipping the hound, you know, he, he just wasn't physically ready for it. But putting that aside, that was his frustration. The point is, is that enormous uh, anxiety and frustration from Alan's point of view, we're 3-1 down, for example. Here we were, the equipment was good. We uh, were good enough to uh, be able to do this thing. And we're in this situation for all different reasons. So with Alan, uh, the point is he came of age. So I... Um, you know, I, I was really on the line, lost a couple of starts against uh, Connor, and uh, he gave me his full backing, you know, whereas he could have so-called spat the dummy and, mm. you know, made major changes. And he backed off and basically backed myself in terms of continuing on and um, endeavouring to 
you know, well, get get this thing sorted. So it wouldn't have happened if it was his, our first challenge or maybe second challenge. And that was a great, my opinion, it was great credit to Alan to have the maturity of that stage to back the, his skipper and uh, back the project in the way he did. You asked me when we sat down why I wanted to get involved in doing podcasts and I was explaining to you in the modern media that everything gets chopped down to, to nothing and, and the great part of this way of doing it is you can get a little bit more involved so I can ask you questions like this and you can take time to expand on them. So the, the fateful morning, at January, uh, so September, I'm not sure of the date, it's 3 or... 26th in US, 27th here. Right, so the 26th of September 1983. Did you sleep well the night before? Uh, with a knockout pill, absolutely. Right, right. So you wake up that day. Tell me yeah. about the day. Well, in you might say in a bubble. Uh, Is it madness around you, or you don't even notice it? Uh, at that stage, it's you kind of it, 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 it's not part of your world. Race of the century, as you said. Yeah, it was. Right. It was a big build-up. This was a big affair. It had yeah. gone beyond American Australia. Now it was a yeah, truly yeah. international. NBC and CBS and so on flown in all their equipment. Interesting enough, leading up to the uh, you know the summer, I think it was the baseball season, and the America's Cup had no airplay, no exposure. But then we started to come on, and uh, you know three one to three two and three three. So all of a sudden, it was being interrupted with the baseball matches, which is a big deal. Mm, big deal. Yeah, this country, Australia, looked like uh, they're competitive, and um, so then it became you know, three all. Down the main street, uh, they were putting up uh, banners. Well done, Dennis, in anticipation. Yeah. The, uh, the t- uh, marquee tents were up with the champagne on ice for the American celebrations. It's all part of the, you know, the the positive nature of the US of A, which is one, you know one of their strengths, of course. Absolutely. And uh, again, the helicopters and the noise. Uh, which again you can't practice for and this is all part and parcel of the whole psychology then to be able to operate so yeah but it was uh, you know the boys up at uh, 5.30 in the morning getting ready and uh, what are they getting paid what are they getting paid $12 a day 12 bucks a day yeah yeah to be a crew member yeah so it's not riches no but plus food and board oh, oh that's not bad then as long as the food was good so sorry to interrupt that's extraordinary so you're up early 5.30 yeah. on your 12 bucks a day yeah and um, nine o'clock, plus or minus thirty seconds, we're we're gone. You know, with the boxing kangaroo and the men at work down under, blaring out, um, and that was like business as usual. Another, as we used to say, another day, another dollar, or twelve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you, you head out on the water. Um, it's the culmination of your life's work, I guess. Yeah, to this people point. go to sleep on the way out, including myself. Yep, the nervous energy is such that you actually can be exhausted. So you have you have a sleep? Absolutely, on the way out downstairs. Downstairs, uh, one of the guys on the tender would come back and steer the boat, and we'd all go down. I'd sleep for maybe a half hours, an hour and a half tow to get out there to mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, where at the racetrack, uh, and that's all part of the you might say getting ready, the body repairing itself, a lot of energy up until then. Nervous energy we're talking about. Never before has a challenger taken three races off the Americans, and it means that for the first time in 132 years of America's Cup history, the contest is taking seven races to settle. Yep, so then the um, you know, the race uh, the race kicks off and it unfolds. It didn't unfold that well early doors. I think you got to 57, 58 seconds behind. Yeah. Um, six leg race, 
think what, four leagues you're still behind. What, what, what happened at the start? What happened early doors that you're a minute behind? Puff of smoke and race seven, the decider for the 1983 America's Cup Series has begun. We, uh, we, we actually won the start. We crossed uh, from memory. It's a long time ago now. Uh, we're in front and then they, you know, we, Mother Nature never gives you the perfect uh, way of getting up the track. You know, in other words, it varies. This is varying about 10 or 15 degrees, light air, 8 to 10 knots of true wind. Um, and um, um, the uh, US machine got in front and then they started to, and they were going well. The boat, they'd changed the boat, uh, they increased the sail area, reduced the weight, at which they found a loophole on the rules. And you know, good luck to them. So they reconfigured their boat for the light winds that were predicted, and the and the conditions were as predicted. So they were highly competitive that day. And there was a lot of back and forth with again for those that aren't aware of the story, the New York Yacht Club. They were doing everything they could could do within and possibly outside the rules to hold on to that car. Yes, the night before the first race, the America's Cup, the U.S. Defense Committee took a vote on whether they would race us for the first for the day one. Because they felt that uh, they felt that they could develop a case where Ben Lexon, the designer, was not the bona fide designer of the wing keel. Wow! So it was a five-four in favour of racing. I'm told. <laughs> so all those pressure points were on, and that was all part of the you know part of the build-up. Mm. Uh, so that would have been World War Three if that happened. But My regardless, word. yeah. And uh, so, anyway, the final race. Yep, the lead changed. I think six or seven times. And uh, the final second last leg, we were well back, as it turns out. We went around the top mark going faster than uh, uh, than Dennis and his team down that first leg. We're f- over 50 seconds, you're right behind. And at that point, if, if you... I don't know if you spend much time on YouTube, but there, there's an ABC News report on YouTube, which I presume a gentleman was doing live at the time. Yep. And he was sort of saying, good morning, Australia, which would have been waking up at this stage. Mm. Um, unfortunately, due to Bertrand's mistakes, Australia looks like they're going to lose the America's Cup. <laughs> don't mess around. No, 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 that's right. Go for the jugular. Yeah. Heading down the second reaching leg, Liberty has extended her lead over Australia too. It seems that Bertrand's errors early in the race may have cost Australia too the America's Cup. So it wasn't, it wasn't looking that good at that point. No, that's right. Yep, so we're behind and uh, we came around with a lot of wash with the spectator boats. The Americans thought that there was, we were going so fast, we actually had more wind, but you couldn't see the wind on the water because the water was chopped up so much that the US uh, afterguard felt that uh, with the wing keel, that there's the only way that they could stop us from passing them was if they start to go and jibe off and endeavour to find extra wind. And they did what we call a jibe. You lose about two-thirds of one boat length every time you make that type of manoeuvre. And they did six or seven jibes to our one. And uh, we got back in the race disproportionately fast. And then it was game on. Um, And uh, so when I mentioned before regarding the decision-making under extreme pressure, Mm. uh, the pressure on the American afterguard was enormous, just like it was for us. And in reality, they, uh, if they hadn't have... um, if they had a so-called covered our manoeuvring instead of going off to do their own thing, the uh, result could have been very different. So why did they do it? Um, as I mentioned before, panic is probably not the right word, but it wasn't far off that in in our assessment of what happened. At what stage do you realise you're going to win? Uh, when you're about 100 metres from the finishing line, if the mast falls down, you can push the bastard across. <laughs> and can you remember... 
you know, when you speak to people that have achieved so much and in the moment they often struggle to remember, you speak to footballers about what did the coach say at quarter time after the game, they can't tell you. Do do you remember, what are your memories of getting towards the line? Well, you know, again, in the the bubble, not wanting to... um, start contemplating that we're going to win this thing. In case a mask falls down. Well, I've been in situations before, you know, where things can go tragically wrong. Mm. She's shooting out a bit of the wind. She's going head to head. She's right. She's right the cup. But when we did cross the line, I remember the uh, the gun, the smoke of the gun from the New York Yacht Club finishing boat going off. I don't remember the sound. Big, <laughs> big gun. Like it was a, you know, a cannon. And um, the relief of you know that it was just overwhelming and then excitement but there's the relief that we we could actually go home we we had the job we got the job done you know so it's just an incredible feeling and this sense of relief and contentment is still with me today in terms of the world of sailing so that's a wonderful feeling to have you know for, for someone to have contentment particularly a very highly competitive individual like myself is something that's you very unique and something i feel um you know, blessed by in many ways. How did you release all that tension and emotion? Like, how, how did you get rid of it out of your body when you It took on the me boat? months and months. Did it? Yeah. Um, the celebrations on the wharf, it, we, I remember the colour and the sounds and the skyrockets going off and people partying. But very interesting enough, our team, all we want to do is get together with ourselves and our loved ones to the oblivion of everyone around partying kind of interesting you know it was just the blood relationships of what we'd been through as individuals so we actually we hadn't you know I hadn't touched a beer for uh, five months nor was really any of the team Mm. so I've probably had one beer or one champagne I couldn't drink anymore and um, it was just great sense of, of of contentment of this tightly held team where we'd been we'd been to hell and back uh as an organization and you know when you know, you read about it, special forces or, you know, the Vietnam War. People come back out of a war zone and they don't go to, into a party. They go into a rehab hospital. Mm. Well, it took me probably three or four or five months to actually enjoy a, a so-called dinner party at home where I could talk to normal people about normal things. But up until then, I was still in that, de- you might say, uh, debriefing from those moments. Would you dream about it? Like, did you, was Yeah, it- and... It, Probably the best way to describe it is we had no sickness in the team. We had 36 people, including shore staff, over seven months. We worked seven days a week for seven months. We had four days off in seven months. So in other words, Monday to Monday, Mm. all the way through, seven by 24, effectively. The day after we won the America's Cup, everyone became ill. And uh, the medicos, it was a case study of, you know, once you, you know, the human body, what it can achieve is remarkable. And then when the work is done, then the systems drop down and you're vulnerable. So I was close to having pneumonia and our kids, even their kids uh, were, were ill. And uh, it it was uh, just one of those, in, but over those seven months before leading into zero sickness in the whole organisation. Wow. Mm. So we'd been to war, and there was no confusion on that. As Australia 2 edged in, it was pandemonium. Newport has never seen such a celebration. There's probably probably two or three images that stick with probably the whole country. I guess one is when Bondi got the boat lifted up out of the water and the keel was revealed for the first time. 
you were obviously there. Yeah. Was it like gasps or was it what people expected or was it here is this thing, it's not that special or like yeah. No, it blew everyone away. Did it? You know, the boat was so different. Um and that it blew us away that when we first put the boat in the water we went sailing over in Fremantle against Challenge twelve and the fact is the boats were almost identical in speed with such a different configuration and keel. We mm. just couldn't believe it. We thought it was going to either be faster or slower, but not similar. Uh, but it was, and in some cases we had to do a lot of modifications, but in some cases we were a little bit quicker and in some cases we were a little slower compared to a conventional boat. Cause it was, and it was really the first shot at a wing keel development, and the following America's Cup they were much further advanced. So it was a little bit like a T-model forward relative to where the wing keel concept was going to go. But putting that aside, it was fantastic, and but it was so different. So when people saw it, they just couldn't believe it. As I said right to you at the start, that people relate the wing keel to um, winning the America's Cup. Does that annoy you? When no, they think no. that you're in a super boat that couldn't be beaten? No, it's basically, it's their, you know, people's reflection on, on and a lot written about the wing keel because it was the point of difference, you know, from a visual point of view. But, um, you know, the people on the boat and within the program, we we understood how much development there was right throughout the organisation. Did you did yeah. did you see Dennis Connor on the dock, or like, what do you say to a bloke? You, you talked about the fact you were, and your boys were under pressure. Holy moly, he's the one that had to keep the 132 year streak going. Um, you know what, um, Dennis and I have never spoken about the America's Cup since. Never. Never. How many times have you seen him since? Oh, we race it. We've raced against each other a lot in the actual class. It's uh, just John, too deep. Y- yeah, too deep for Dennis. It was huge, you know, to lose the cup. And um, and uh, the last race and so on, no, it's never been never been discussed. And I, I don't need to, you know, but uh, it's interesting that Dennis has never wanted to talk about it. Maybe we need to send me his email and we get him on for the Howie Games <laughs> and see how he's going. The, the other couple of things that stuck in my mind, um, the presentation. We, we, there was one session we had at one stage, but, yep. uh, you know, it's sort of a little interview thing. But, uh, no, it's a... Uh, Fascinating. To put it again, put it in context, the when the America's Cup was handed over, Dennis wasn't there. He was back in San Diego. He told me that um, he was given the wrong date <laughs> of the ceremony, and the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club flew to Paris. A guy called Commodore uh, McCullough, Bob McCullough, supposedly on business, so he couldn't attend the ceremony. So the Vice Commodore at the time, uh, a guy called Bob Stone, terrific bloke, he presented the cup at the Marble House in front of the world's press. So that could never happen in Australia, you know, mm. it would be considered bad sportsmanship. Mm. Did you consider it bad sportsmanship at yes, the time? Yes, absolutely. But uh, in America, you know, we're talking about we're talking about uh, losing the Vietnam War here. Mm. It's nothing less <laughs> I can't believe for the you, people involved. I can't believe you never discussed it. Yeah. Um, two more of those images. Ronald Reagan presenting the America's Cup to Bondi. That's um, it's bizarre, bizarre, and both spoke so wonderfully well, mm. both the president and and Alan Bond did. Yep, you captured the imagination of the people the world over. Skipper John Bertrand, you and the crew of the Australia too have shown us the stuff of which Australians are made. Yes, well, you know, again, the um, no, no one had ever, no president of the United States had been involved. Kennedy was, uh, John F. Kennedy because uh, he was a very, very keen sailor. So he watched some of the America's Cup racing with Jackie Onassis. But um, 
the uh, yeah no a big deal we went up to the rose garden up to the white house and presented it and and uh, the president president reagan was just amazing you know, his delivery was sensational he, he called me captain bertrand which i thought was pretty cool and <laughs> and i asked uh, i asked his do uh, i see what makes this guy so different and uh, he said he naturally knows the difference between right and wrong intuitively he said most of the decisions are not 50-50, so they're automatic, those decisions coming from a good staff, you know, group, whatever. But the 50-50 decisions, which is the requirement for the president, back in those days at least, was about, in, uh, you know, right from wrong, and that's that set, that set uh, Reagan apart, according to this fellow. And he also told me a story that uh, they were involved in the... Uh, this is, a, you know, during this, after the presentation, we were, had tours through the White House and so on. And he said the best, another way to explain it, uh, John, was uh, we're doing an anti-armaments uh, uh, negotiations with the Russians. And I think it was Brushtoff, the Brushtoff, the uh, president then, I may be wrong. But uh, anyway, at the first uh, summit meeting, which was held in Washington, the Russians came across and afterwards uh, Reagan didn't do particularly well, didn't have his... Uh, enough um you know preparation so he said you know guys i've got to do better everyone agreed so he did a lot of swatting three months later flying into moscow on air force one and this fellow said to this is what he was telling me he went up to the president he said sir have you got any further questions before we land and the president's looking out through a window and he doesn't say anything and he said uh, you know mr mr president um you know are you okay and he says son have a look at this and he's looking out and he's not sure what he's looking for. And he says, there's no semi-trailers on these highways. He said, this economy is in trouble. And according to the uh, to the aide, uh, he basically concluded that was the start of Star Wars, which is the start of the Russian economy being affected to such an extent that the Berlin Wall collapsed. Wow. Yeah, so pretty heavy stuff. And it was just an honour to be involved and to be you know, have a um, a keyhole into the superpower of the United States. And, of course, that's what we took on and won, you know, the America's Cup. And our own Prime Minister is obviously famous linked to the America's Cup for his comments. Not presidential, but perfectly Australian. Oh, it's perfect. Talking about seizing at the moment, you know, yeah. talk about one of the, the great orators of this country have got to be Bob Hawke. Yeah. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. <laughs> and that was not pre... You know, it wasn't part of a prescription or anything. I'd spoken, I spoke to the, his security people years later and he said it was just came out came out of the man. Off the cuff. Yeah, anyone who sacks anyone today is, for being late is a bum. It's just beautiful, you know. And as, as Bob says, you know, in his later years now, he floated the dollar, they deregulated the financial <laughs> system here in Keating. The most memorable things that uh, he stood for is that particular quote, <laughs> which he loves, you know, but it's, it's terrific. So when does, you're in Newport, as you said, for months at a time, you've shut off the TVs and the radios. When you arrive home, at what point do you realise the impact it had on the rest of us back here? You know what, I still am. Isn't that wonderful? It's incredible. The stories that people tell me, you know, all around the country, wherever I go, stop me in the street and they want to tell me what they were doing, you know, 34 years ago, you know, if you're old enough. So the impact on this country was... You know, it was a, uh, it's ex- quite extraordinary, yeah. How do you feel to be linked to that? Well, it's a great honour, you know. How does one 
part of a country's sporting history or history. In, in, yeah, not sporting history. You're no, right. History. goes beyond that, yeah. Yes, isn't it wonderful? Great. Have <laughs> I listened to it on the bus? He's pleased. Tremendous. Oh, magnificent. Yeah. Great, 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 great yeah. for Australia. Have you heard the result this morning? Yes, and I'm proud to be in Australia. Um, there's a sense of responsibility as well in terms of what we achieved and how we achieved it. Uh, and that's something that, that we uh, that I protect. I endeavour to protect in terms of the integrity of how we went about this and uh, the people involved. Yeah. Back to John Burchin in a second. As I record this, I am in Bathurst in the lead up to the Bathurst 1000 with Channel 10. And last week's ep was with a man who will be racing this weekend at Bathurst, James Courtney. Now, we have received so many messages at MarkHoward03 on Twitter and Facebook, as well as emails at thehowiegames.hotmail.com from people who said they have no interest in motorsport at all, yet listen due to their enjoyment of past episodes of the podcast, and they really like the episode. That is super, super cool. Good for you guys out there. James Courtney is about so much more than just driving a V8 supercar. He detailed his struggles at school his sliding doors moment that crushed his Formula One dream, the death of a teammate and how a freak accident hit him for six. Coming out of my garage to walk out, I went to the toilet and I was walking through Charlie's garage who they, we ran the Schwerkolt licence that year mm. and walking around to walk back into, out, like in that five seconds it takes to walk out of one garage, around the door and into another, a helicopter's hovering with old mate perving on some chick on the roof, comes down too <laughs> low Gets caught up in the turbulence. A pit boom comes flying off and cracks me in the side. Breaks six ribs. Um, all my whole sternum's broke. Well, broke my whole sternum. Six ribs. Pushed three ribs into my spine. I've still got pins and needles in my legs now. Um, ruptured my lungs. Um, it's yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> That's James Courtney on last week's episode of the Howie Games. All right, back to John Bertrand. So how old were you when you won the America's Cup? Uh, 36. 36. So it struck me driving this morning thinking uh, this is the one thing I would like to know. You get to 36, you've achieved your life's ambition at 36. How do you go about resetting the rest of your life? The, most of us don't achieve what we want to achieve mm. by the age of 36. Well, it took me several years. I, it's uh, at, uh, at probably about a year and a half after we came back, Raz and I, um, I was up on a farm in uh, Wagga uh, with Raz and I was in one of the paddocks there and I just, I couldn't talk. Uh, it's called depression now, but there was no word for it then. So it took me quite a while, a long time to uh, to move through that uh, world where I endeavoured to find the next phase of or the next chapter of my life. And the best advice I had was from a very good friend, um, a guy called David Howes, and he said, you, you know, John, the best thing you can do is walk and talk, see how other people are making a living. How, and, the, and the advice I give young people who are, you know, the swimmers, for example, is it's really important to endeavour to understand how other people go about their business to find out the next passion in their life. And that's what I did. So I talked to a lot of people before I started to, you know, get myself out of, the, uh, uh, out of that environment. But, uh, you know, losing your confidence, not being able to actually put two words together. And here I was, the skipper of the winning America's Cup boat. So that's the reality of, um, you know, the swimming program. We have what they call the Beyond the Black Line now. Mm. And it's helping these uh, young people move to the next stage of their life. So I've been there, done it. And and I yeah, I fully understand, you know, the uh, how difficult it can be. And it's all about a journey to find the next passion in your life. That's the big one. That's the That's the silver bullet. I really didn't expect you were going to talk 
that way. I didn't expect to hear that from you. I had no idea. Can you, um, and I don't want to dwell on if you're uncomfortable. No, no, but not at all. You're in a paddock and you can't yeah. speak. Yeah, words won't come out. Yeah. And you link that now to what we would describe as depression. Is yeah. this because you'd achieved everything too early or what, what, were, what was no. causing those feelings? Uh, basically, I'd retired from international racing and uh, lost total confidence in terms of what can I do as a person, you know, now a double degree, I graduated from MIT, a lot, of, you know, all, all looks good. It looks very good. Yeah. It's hard to fathom. Had uh, done a whole lot of public speaking, which is fine, but it's like giving one way. There's no, you know, it's, it's lovely, but uh, it's not a career per se. It certainly wasn't for myself. Mm. Um, and uh, the question is, what am I going to do? You know, because that part of it is a, one chapter of my life, but only one chapter. And the question is, what's, uh, you know, what's, where, how can I find an, a, a, a new vocation where I'm going to really enjoy? And this is, you know, the higher up you go, generally, what a, the definition of that is the more focused you are. You know, we have the same thing with, um, you know, with uh, Grant Hackett, for example, and Thorpey and these people, you know, at the highest level, when you are at the top of the world, uh, that really means that you just try really, really hard to get there. <laughs> it's not rocket science, mm. you know, and natural talent, but it's really this this focus of, um, of, of perfection in many ways to the detriment of the rest of your life. And uh, so then when that's finished, when you've climbed that Everest and you look around, uh, that's the, that's that's the the new challenge, and it's the challenge of any of these sports people. You know, with say AFL footballer in their own world, where all of a sudden they're in this town in Melbourne, for example, they're hero one day, and then they feather duster the next because of what they've they've been on television, they've retired, and then who cares? You know, it's Johnny Who. So that's the reality of you know what we have here. There's a lot more resources available, but. Um, uh, the uh, you know this whole transition is a is a big deal. You mentioned the transition, and I would in no way ask you of specifics, but with those experiences, and, and you mentioned a couple of high profile cases, and I know a couple of the female swimmers um, in recent times have struggled along similar lines. Do you sit down and talk to these people and explain yeah. your experiences? Oh yeah, yeah, and that's why my position as president of Swimming Australia is. I've, there's a lot of added value here because I've I've been there. At, the top of the world in terms of um, you know performing when it really counts. Uh, I've been through the lowest of the lows, so I've you know there's a fair bit of scar tissue with myself and a lot of knowledge, and uh, I prefer to call it wisdom now. <laughs> it's a nice way of looking at it. Obviously, sailing has stuck with you. You've you mentioned etchels and earlier on, you've well in in the age of a seventy year old, you've recently won world titles. You've won world titles in your sixties. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's, some, it's really cool. After Rio, we got hammered a bit. We was, you know, the swimming program was considered was perceived as being a failure by the press. Well, the fact is, we won forty percent of the Olympic golds for the Australian team overall, and we're a number two nation behind the US. But the press built us up to a point where we're going to, you know, win eight or nine gold medals, which is mm. totally impossible. But putting all that aside, uh, coming out of Rio, I went. To went, Raz and I went back to the UK and uh, competed in the world, and I, I competed in the World Etchel Championships with a, a new crew, red hot crew, and we won the bastard. So I was very, you know, it was just a great sense of pride. So, how old were you then? Uh, last year. So, I was 69. 
That's fantastic, mate. Yeah, and against a lot of Olympic medalists and uh, Olympians and world champions in a fleet of 70 where they all have to qualify. Um, and the interesting thing is is that, um, you know, <laughs> one, we should never have won it because the lack of preparation relative to US had been, teams had been flying over and putting a lot of effort into it and whatever. But uh, the pressure of the world championships is enormous, unlike a normal regatta. Mm. And uh, that's where... I guess my experience and reflection came through where we're able to put it together again when it really counted. So it's something I'm very proud of, yeah. You talked about the swimmers, um, and I've asked a couple of high-profile people on the show. I talked to this about Greg Norman, and I, I we talked about the travelling, and I couldn't be more proud to be an Australian and couldn't be think of a better place I'd rather live. But the only thing that I'd struggle with in this country is what we call the tall poppy syndrome. Mm. You are mentioning the swimmers. James Magnuson, who, when I re-met you, for want of a better term, we were involved in the swim broadcast for Network 10 and James, a lovely fella, went to the Olympics, won an Olympic silver medal when no individual swimmer won a gold medal, was beaten by Nathan Adrian by one one hundredth of a second mm. and in Australia it was, well, he lost the gold medal. That frustrates me about Australia. How do you view that? Because you talked about the Americans putting up banners and Dennis is going to win and they are all about positivity and if you have a go, they love you. In Australia, if you have a go and stick your head up for whatever reason people want to knock it off mm. yeah i think it's a naivety in many ways um this whole tall poppy thing the reason for the book um the title born to win it was originally going to be called to take you home which is an excerpt out of jonathan livingston seagull which you refer to frequently in the book yeah and uh i thought to take you home was terrific but the publishers and this is the best way to describe it, the publishers in uh in, in New York said it's not a pick-me-up title. This may, I don't know what the number is, but there's a thousand new titles launched every week in America. So you've got to have a so-called pick-me-up title. Right. Something that would bounce off, off the shelf This because it was first published in America. And uh, they said, what's different about this bloke? And uh, when they realised that my great-grandfather was involved in building three America's Cup boats for Sir Thomas Lipton in Southampton in England, well, they said, obviously born to win, you know, the, He's a great grandson of this bloke, and initially, when they when it, when the they suggest the suggestion came back, I said, "There's no way. There's no way I could call a book that in this country." In Australia, tall poppy syndrome. And then I thought to hell, you know, the biggest problem we have as a nation, or one of the issues, the challenges, not problem, challenges, is this thing of not handling success. We don't really understand how to celebrate it. The U.S. You know, the high five and good on you down here. It's we struggle with it. And uh, I thought at that stage of the game, if anyone can help legitimise the consideration of success, then let's go for it. So, uh, so that was the, the, you know, hence the title of the book. And this is really, you know, it's this whole issue of um, the Americans talk about failing fast, having come back from the US, Silicon Valley. You know, it's massive changes happening. Then this whole question of um, creativity, fail fast learn, succeed. It's a very simple chain. And the failing fast is all part of it. Most entrepreneurs, for example, need generally two major failures before they find success. That's quite unheard of in this country, where mm. a failure is a failure. So we need to grow up and around that. And I think, I'm really hopeful the internet has changed everything. There's a lovely throwaway line that uh, half the kids now go to the pub and the other half are doing their startups. In Australia. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Here you are, Howie, with a podcast. You know, you don't know where it'll take you, but nevertheless, you're getting good reactions. That's, that's beautiful stuff. 
This only comes as a result of the digital revolution. We are part, this country is part of the digital revolution. And uh, so my hope here is, is that these, you know, the next generation or the new generation are much more worldly in the concept of success and failure. And the consideration of the tall poppy syndrome is becoming old world. Gee, I hope you're right. Mm. I hope you're right. I've taken up enough of your time. I only have two more questions for you. One of the ideas of the Howie Games is to inspire and motivate the audience um, and to sit across from someone like you that's inspired me and motivated me is, it's a treat. It is a treat and and I really appreciate your time. Who inspires you? That's a question without notice. Yeah, I've had, uh, you know, well, for, for one, you know, mentors, and that's originally mum and dad, you know, when they're alive. Dad died when I was 15 years old. Uh, mum was a huge influence. And my grandmother, you know, she said, she used to carve out little things from Billy Graham, remember? He came across and he had 100,000 people at the MCG, the evangelist. Yeah. Unbelievable. You can't, you know, can't imagine it now. She used to say of you that we wouldn't little win the America's bits. Cup. Well, until... she said you can do anything. America's Cup, whatever, you know. Well, I think she was famously quoted as saying that Australia wouldn't win the America's Cup until her little Johnny was in charge. Yeah. So in terms of motivation or whatever or inspiration, you Mm. know, from your loved ones, from the family who you trust. And then people, you know, the great Dane Paul Elstrom, (laughs) remarkable man over in uh, Denmark, Mm. you know. So all these different people. But mentors are extremely important for anyone, you know. And if you look at success... Generally, uh, so-called successful people, again, whatever success means, they've had mentors who have been a great help to them. And generally, it's about this consideration of wisdom, where it comes from people who have been there and done it before. And I I think, and also uh, the consideration of endeavouring to learn about leadership. And leadership is about vision, visionaries. And I've sought natural leaders all my life to learn from and to uh, hopefully role model off. You mentioned their success, whatever it means to people. What does it mean to you, success? I think it means, and this is really to our kids as well, it's happiness. Because when I say whatever that means, because it could mean that you make a whole heap of money or that you feel fantastic as a writer or as an author or as a painter, uh, it's this sense of happiness and sense of contentment and the people that you affect around you. And the consideration of having a set of values which you can live by. And you're happy now? Yeah, I am. This will uh, throw you a little bit, but the podcast always finishes. I mentioned earlier on, I have a couple of young children. I have a chat with them uh, before I go and have a chat with someone. And How old they, are they? Uh, I've got Sky, who operates, as people of this show would know, she's seven, and her nickname is The Pickle. And I have my young son, who is five, whose name is Mac, but operates unusually, John, uh, named himself two years ago as The Big Penguin. I don't know why he's named himself the Big Penguin. Isn't that beautiful? But I've had a chat with him. At what age would he have named himself the Big Penguin? Uh, Age three. One morning, I got him out of bed and I said, come on, Mac, it's time to get ready and we'll go outside. He said, Dad, I've changed my name and I'm what to? He said, the Big Penguin. And it's not even Penguin. It needs to be Big Penguin. So I asked them every morning, I give them a brief history of the person I'm going to chat with and then I completely leave it up to them what question they would like to ask. Now, you got the Big Penguin. Now, remember, I, <laughs> he asked me this one this morning. I said, well, if that's what you want to ask, he's only five. So this is his question to you, John. Hi, John. Big Penguin here. I'm just wondering if you've ever fallen off your boat. Uh, a big Penguin. That's his sister laughing in the background, yes. Big Penguin, yes. <laughs> right. And I learnt then to hang on thereafter. Now, let me just tell you a very 
brief story. We came back from the America's Cup and the local primary school, we're living in Black Rock, Rouse and I and our kids. Incidentally, our daughter's name is Sunshine. So you've got a sky and got a sunshine. Uh, And uh, I went along to the school and, uh, you know, the quadrangle was just full of these little kids all cross-legged sitting down. Actually, it was a big hall. And uh, there's, uh, you know, little questions questions coming through. And there's this little kid up the back, okay? <laughs> His hand went up and down, up and down, and realised that, you know, very shy. And I said, now, young man up the back, you know, what's your question? He, and he went up with his biggest voice he could get. He said, Mr. Bertrand, during the America's Cup, did you ever see any butterflies? <laughs> <laughs> It's a tough one to respond to. Well, I said, uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Now, what else can you say? <laughs> John, I can't appreciate your time more enough. It's, it seems strange. Is this still out in print if I'm telling there's people to new, read Born to Win? There's a new edition. Uh, yep. Still basically the same. Yep. Well, it's one of the best sports books. In fact, it's one of the best books I've ever read. But to sit here and chat with you, best of luck with everything going forward with... The swimming, etc. Have you got another world title in you in the yachts or not? Yeah, next year we'll give it a crack. It's going to be in Australia. All right, which will make you over seventy. Yep. Can you win a world title as an eighty-year-old? I don't know. We'll give. We'll see. Basically, uh, I'll keep going until they uh, close the lid. Couldn't appreciate your time more, John. Thank you very much. That is it for episode 35 of the show and thanks to the legend that is John Bertrand. Hope you took something from the episode. Please do me a favour and spread the word to all your crew about the Howie Games. Love you a long time if you do. All right, until next Thursday, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try That's it, Donkey Nuts. Listener.